0: Right. well, uh, this evening, um, we're going to conclude our overview of the covenants. We have, of course, been um, looking at how to read the Bible, and central to good Bible reading is understanding the nature of the various covenants and how they relate to one another, how they are, or the, the movement that they are uh, moving in in our last meeting we looked at uh, some of the positive statements of the law uh, from, the, from the New Testament, the positive statements about the, the Old covenant that are made in the New Testament and, and these are statements we saw uh, clearly indicate to us that there is an abiding use of the Old covenant as we all. We are New Covenant believers, but there is an abiding use of the Old Covenant, and we saw some of that um, at our last meeting. The law is good, we are told, from the New Testament. The law is spiritual. It is profitable, so long as someone uses it lawfully. But we saw that the New Testament authors, of course, also quite Um, freely uh, quote uh, the Old Testament and and the Old Testament law, Uh, but of course its its applications have changed, right? We we saw an example of how like a a civil law, uh, specifically with respect to the death penalty, is applied now to the practice of excommunication um, within the church, That this is a kind of death penalty when somebody is being given back over to the world and the church is being purged of the evil that is within its midst. We saw that um, from 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 5. So the whole Old Testament uh, we saw is still profitable. It points us to Christ. It instructs us. But as I said last time, we have to do the work of understanding its fulfillment before we can accurately apply it. We can't just swoop into the Old Covenant as if there's been no change at all, no fulfillment at all, find a verse, quote the verse, and then conclude this is binding upon us. We have to recognize where we are within the the grand scheme of redemptive history. Faithful biblical interpretation requires us to understand rightly where we are in God's unfolding works of redemption. But having said this uh, again, it is also clear that the New Testament not only has many Um, positive things to say about the Old Testament. It not only commends uh, the Old Testament to us, but there are also what we might call negative statements in regards to the law and the Old Covenant, uh, the Mosaic Covenant in particular, from the New Testament itself. There are statements that make it very clear that a significant change has taken place and a change that necessarily changes our relationship to that old covenant law. And as we begin this evening, I want to just read, I just want to read several of these statements. I want you to get a feel for the fact that in a very real sense, There is an inadequacy of the law. There's a weakness to it, and there is a clear break from it. We'll look at some of these statements, a couple of these, in more detail, but I want you to just hear uh, some of these statements first. So, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul calls the law the letter. And he contrasts the letter with the Spirit. And he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6, that the letter kills. He calls it in verse 7, the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone. The law is the ministry of of death. In verse 7 again, the ministry of death was being brought to an end. It has a concluding point. In verse 9, it's called there the ministry of condemnation. Verse 10, it has come to have No glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. It had a glory, but now in comparison to the greater glory, it has no glory. You look at Romans chapter 6. You don't have to turn there. This is a a quick passage. Romans chapter 6, verse 14, Paul says there, sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. That's what you're under. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 20. We'll look at this text in more detail. But Paul there similarly says of himself, to those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law. I'm not under the law. Again, as I said, we'll, we'll look at this passage in, in some more detail, but he is specifically referring to that old covenant, that Mosaic covenant that the Jews, as a people, as a nation, was under with God. And he's saying, not under that. Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. All who rely on works of the law are under a curse. Galatians chapter 3, verse 19. The law was added because of transgressions. In other words, the law was instituted in order to bring sin and transgression out into the open. To expose it. To bring it to light. To make it very clear. Galatians 3, verse 23. Before faith came, we were held captive under the law. Galatians 4, verses 22 to 24. Those who are under the Sinai covenant, Paul says are in slavery. They're in in bondage. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 56. The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 15. Christ has abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances Colossians chapter 2 verse 16 Paul there is speaking about questions of food and drink and festivals and new moons and sabbaths and he says of these that they are all a shadow of things to come but the substance belongs to Christ right the law well, all of these All these things are involved with the law, tied to the law, works of the law. They're shadows. They're they're coming to an end. Some passages from Hebrews. We'll we'll look at at a couple of these from chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 12. When there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. Change in the priesthood, change in the law. Verses 18 to 19 of that same chapter, speaking of the law, it is set aside because of its weakness. And he says, uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5, the law there is described as a copy and shadow, again, of the heavenly things. They they pointed to something greater, something even more real. Verse 6, the ministry of Christ is much more excellent than the old. Verse 7, the first covenant, we're told there, was not without fault. It was not faultless. It, it had faults, it had weaknesses to it. And then, last one, verse 13, the first covenant has become obsolete and is ready to vanish away. Now, of course, like any passage, context is always important, right? but you, you get a feel from these verses that there is certainly something about the law that makes it inferior to what has come. It has weaknesses. It has a temporary use. It was pointing to something greater, and when that greater thing came, it reached its telos, its end, its goal. That which it was pointing to, when it came, it served its purpose. It was fulfilled. And now something even better and more glorious has come. And you get a feel for the fact that the Apostles can say two things about the law rather freely. The New Testament speaks of the law as good, spiritual, profitable, while also speaking very plainly of the fact that it has come to an end. It has come to be obsolete and but a shadow. So, whatever view we have of the law, it must be able to say both things together and freely and with confidence. The law is good. The law is righteous. It is profitable for teaching, for correction. And it's come to an end. There are some who can say one and not the other. Right? There's some who freely say that the law is obsolete, but they're less inclined to say that it's good, right? but it still has use. And so effectively for them, it has uh, become nothing at all. Right? You don't really need it once you have the New Testament. And then there are those who love the law, who see its goodness and its wisdom, rightly so, but they're unable to bring themselves to be able to say, and it has come to have no glory at all, in comparison to what has come. We want to be able to say both things, and we need to be able to hold all of these things together Of course, last time we met, our our emphasis was was on holding one side of that together, right? These positive statements of the law, its goodness, and its abiding relevance. But today, I want to just get into a couple of these passages that speak very clearly of its end. And of the fact that Christians, as Christians, we are not under the Old Covenant. We have to be able to recognize and say that with absolute clarity. We're not under it. So, I want to look again um, first at the passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 9. If you want to look at me uh, again from from that passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Now, um, in chapter 9, Paul has been defending the right that he has to earn a living off of preaching the gospel, Um, even though he has not made use of that right among the Corinthians, so as not to cause them to stumble in any way. Um, Other churches have been supporting him. He's he's received um, help and, and support from uh, partners like the uh, Philippian church for the Macedonian church. but well, Because of their support, the Corinthians have not had to. He has not taken anything from them. But Paul's been defending his ministry against false accusations that were probably accusing him of just wanting financial gain from the Corinthians. You know, accusing him of being one of these sophists who just sort of go around and speak for money and so what he does is he he speaks to them about how he has he has uh, he's taken nothing from them he's clear of that charge while still maintaining his right to do so and interestingly enough in verses 9 to 14 he has been citing the law in his own defense the law about not muzzling an ox when it treads out the grain is cited as, in principle, supporting, uh, or, 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 uh, providing support for paying a worker his due wages. He also references uh, how the priests and the Levites who ministered in the temple under the old covenant received their food from the sacrifices that were offered in the temple. They were compensated for their labors. If the priests in the Old Covenant were taken care of and were compensated for their labors, so also should the ministers of the New Covenant be compensated for their labors. But again, Paul stresses that fact that he has not made use of what is actually his right with the Corinthians. He he wanted to do whatever was necessary in order to win them. They were very familiar with people who just came around and said new things and got paid for it. And he did not want to be a stumbling block in any way to them. So he never received any compensation for them. And he reminds them of this. And then in verses 19 to 23, he explains this decision by describing his ministry philosophy. And I want you to notice what he says here. Verse 19, he says, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. Now, he is a Jew. So what does he mean? I became as a Jew. He was born from the tribe of Benjamin. Well, it means that when he was around Jews, he had no problem respecting Jewish practices and refraining from certain freedoms that he now had by virtue of being in the new covenant, but which freedom which would cause them to be offended, unnecessarily so. He observed certain customs, particularly because those customs were not customs that were sinful in and of themselves, maybe he refrained from eating certain meats because the law forbid those meats from being eaten. There was, again, no need to offend Jews over matters of what he was going to eat around him just because he had the freedom to do so. He laid down some of those freedoms and rights he had in order to win them. But then he explains further in verse 20, Still referring to the Jews, he said, to those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. Now, to be under the law means you're under the Mosaic Covenant. That whole covenant. It is binding upon you. You are obligated to keep all of its statutes, all of its regulations, all of its commands you are required to do. That's what the Jews, he says, were under. They are under this law that requires obedience in every single part of it. This is the covenant that God made with them long ago, and it was a covenant that they were under as a whole. He is not just here speaking about a part of the law, a civil part, or a ceremonial part, or a moral part. This is the covenant as a whole, what all of the Jews are under it includes even what we might refer to as moral commands. It's everything. And we know that it includes even the moral commands, not only because how we've seen the law itself structured before, but also, in a moment, Paul is going to want to clarify he's not lawless altogether. He's not just jettisoning morality altogether he's not someone who is unbound by any ethical restraints he has to clarify that and he has to clarify that when he says that he's not under the law so that they don't understand uh, that, that he's not misunderstood to be saying that he has no moral restraints it includes the whole thing then he goes on in verse 21. He says to those outside the law, which is the Gentiles. These are Gentiles who who elsewhere, he says, are uh, are without the law or here outside the law. These are those who are not in covenant with God. God never entered into a covenant with them. He never commanded them to keep any particular covenant covenant they have no knowledge of his law they do not have the special revelation of God that explicitly teaches them what is righteous and what is evil to these Paul says he says to those outside the law I became as one outside the law I lived as they live I ate freely whatever they ate I conducted myself, how they conduct themselves, with this caveat. He says, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. He's not without law altogether. He's not just saying like, you know, when the Gentiles are committing idolatry, I'm doing that too, because now I'm without law altogether. No, he's still bound. There's still moral restraints on him. There's a limit to his freedoms with the Gentiles. He's not outside the law of God altogether, but what is he under? He's under the law of Christ. So that he says, I might win those outside the law. In other words, Paul, on the one hand, is not under the law of God, not under the Mosaic covenant. As a covenant, it has ceased, It has no use for him as a covenant since he is under the new covenant, or to put it another way, the old covenant is not binding upon him any more. However, this does not mean, again, that he's just without law altogether. He is still under the law, but rather than it being the law of Moses, it's the law of Christ. There are moral obligations that he, as well as we, still have by virtue of being in the new covenant and being under the law of Christ. And to be under the law of Christ means that you are part of the new covenant and are obligated to all of the teachings of Christ. Christ. And we might add, since Christ gave authority to his apostles, we are also obligated to the teachings of the apostles. That they speak, they write with his same authority. Or as 2 Peter chapter 3, what we looked at this morning, puts it, we are to remember the commandment of the Lord delivered through the apostles. Now, this is not or or shouldn't be a vague or ambiguous notion either it is not as if the commandments of Christ and the apostles is somehow obscure and we can't find them we we can't locate them there's certainly we don't have a, a section in the gospels or the epistles where you know Jesus just says okay here is a new set of Ten Commandments I want you to follow, right? We've got something like that under the Old Covenant. We have an event at Sinai where the Lord gives them a set of Ten Commandments. We don't have anything like that in the New Testament where Jesus is just saying specifically, here are some laws to follow or a specific list of them. That is under the the Old Covenant, but I want you also not to forget that the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words were not the only laws to be followed. You you continue to read throughout the the book of Exodus and Leviticus and and Deuteronomy and Numbers and there's all kinds of other commandments and statutes and ordinances, right? It's not just one single list of of Ten Commandments, It's, it's a variety of them all throughout. You find them all over the place, just as. In the New Testament, you find them all over the place. There's commandments all over the place. Uh, There are parables. There is ethical instruction. You have the Sermon on the Mount. You have ordinances. You have didactic teaching. You have narratives, just as in the Old Testament. Under the Old Testament, right is is. uh, you know, is, is the book of Samuel binding? Yes. As, as a narrative, it, it instructs us. It teaches us. And the truths that it teach are binding. It's the same in the New Covenant. We have narrative. We have didactic teachings. The teachings of Christ and the apostles are the moral requirements of the New Covenant. They teach us how to get in to the New Covenant, right, by faith. We believe in the Lord. This is a commandment of the Lord. You believe in the one whom the Father has sent. And by doing so, you have both the Father and the Son. They teach us how to get in the New Covenant. They teach us what life in the New Covenant is to be like. Right? How is a husband supposed to treat his wife? How is a wife supposed to relate to her husband? How are the parents supposed to treat the children? How do believers within the church How do they care for one another? How do they treat one another? How do we treat those who are outside of the church? What do we do with our enemies? What do we do with our neighbors? These are all things that are very clear and stated in various places throughout the New Testament. This is the law of Christ for us. Now, having said this, I want to reiterate a prior point as well. Christ and the Apostles continue themselves continue to speak about the goodness of the law. So, one aspect of the law of Christ and of our New Covenant obligations is to continue to find instruction from the Old Covenant in light of its fulfillment. In Christ so again if if the new covenant itself is commending the old covenant to us albeit in light of its fulfillment we still have obligations to the old covenant sometimes this is easier than others in order to discern the law says for example you shall not murder that expresses the moral character of God. And God doesn't change. Right? His nature doesn't change. His attributes do not change. His moral character does not change. So a law like that is as much binding on us today as it was then under the old covenant. In fact, you know, that's a clear example where you have it explicitly repeated in the new covenant in various places. But that, that's an easy example. Example. But what about, say, the temple? Do we go to the temple for worship? No. And yes, it's a little more involved. No, we don't, because under the old covenant, the temple was found in a single location and was a building built by hands. It was a copy of something in heaven. But we know both from the Old Covenant and the New that that temple pointed to something even greater to come, a greater temple. Jesus, we find, is the true temple. And His body, His people, is also described as a new living temple being built up by the very hands of God in which He dwells by the Spirit. The temple has reached its fulfillment in Christ. And now we worship in the temple by being joined to Christ and by assembling together with the living stones of the temple, the church. So it's a, you know, if you're asked the question, do, do you worship in the temple now? Do, do you obey the old covenant commands right to, to worship the Lord in his temple? No and yes, We just have to understand how it has reached its fulfillment. We uphold the goodness of the old covenant while recognizing how it has reached its end. It is a both and answer because in all matters directly related to the old covenant, you have to discern how they have reached their fulfillment in Christ, which means how they've reached their end, the end of their original purpose, and are now applied to the new realities of the new covenant. Now let me look at another passage um, from Hebrews uh, chapter 7 and chapter 8, uh, briefly. And uh, here I just want to highlight some points about the logic of the argument the author of Hebrews is making. Hebrews chapter 7, we'll start there, chapter 7, verse 11 and 12 in particular. Now, just as a brief background, the book of Hebrews is written to Jewish believers who are being tempted to go back under the old covenant to go back into Judaism, that they're being persecuted, their property has been plundered, they're suffering because they are out and out New Covenant believers. They're followers of Christ. They are trusting in the Messiah that they had longed for for generations. And it's bringing persecution upon them. And so the temptation is to renounce Christ and to go back into Judaism to cause the persecution to cease. And the author of Hebrews is basically saying to them, no, don't do that. That's the wrong direction. You're going backwards. And he's also saying, why would you do that? Why would you go back to the law which was a copy and a shadow of greater things to come. He's also, throughout the book, giving an exposition of Psalm 110. You, you find this psalm referenced all throughout the book of Hebrews. And, um, how, how many of you were here when we went through Hebrews? I think it was just maybe half of you now. it's been a while now um one of the things though that that um i argued when we when we first started going through that is that um i think the the book of hebrews is very likely uh, a a sermon it's called at the very end of the book a a word of exhortation which is the exact phrase that is used of the apostle paul when he goes into a synagogue in, in, in the book of acts and the scroll is read, and then he's asked, "You know, do you have any word of exhortation to give to us?" And then he preaches the gospel. Right. So very likely, this is a sermon, and um, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't put this exactly in the category of expositional preaching, but it's very, very much uh, an exposition of Psalm one ten all throughout, and in chapters seven and eight. The author really starts unpacking what it means that the Davidic king of Psalm 110 would also be a priest in the order of Melchizedek. What does that mean? What does the psalm mean? What are the implications of that statement that he would be a priest in the order of Melchizedek? And one of the things that he argues is that the priesthood of Melchizedek was a superior priesthood to that of the Levites. This is really the argument of the beginning of chapter 7, basically verses 1 to 10. We won't get into that, but that's basically the point. The priesthood of Melchizedek was superior to that of the priesthood of Aaron. But I want to pick up in verse 11. And we read here, the author says, Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? Now, there's a lot here, but I want to focus particularly on this question and what it means. What further need would there have been for another priest? The author of Hebrews is looking at Psalm 110, and what he is seeing is that the Messiah, David's Lord, will be a priest in a different priesthood. And he's drawing this logical inference. If the priesthood of Aaron was sufficient to deal with sins, there wouldn't be a need for another priesthood. It it was fine how it was. It, It was perfect. Aaron's priesthood would have been sufficient. But because a new priesthood was coming, that necessarily implies that there's something incomplete or insufficient about the Aaronic priesthood. And of course the insufficiency is the fact that the Aaronic priesthood could not actually perfect the conscience. It simply dealt with external matters. Matters of ritual washing. It did not deal with the heart. It didn't address the soul of a person. It provided no remedy for that uncircumcised heart. Moreover, what this also tells us is that the Old Covenant itself anticipated its eventual end. Let me state that again. The Old Covenant, the Old Testament, is itself anticipating a day to come when this priesthood and the law it's tied to will reach an end. But of even greater significance for our purposes is the fact that the priesthood of the Old Covenant... Is bound up with the whole covenant, such that when the priesthood is replaced, that means that the old covenant as a whole has reached its end. He says again in verse 12, He says, therefore, where, or excuse me, when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. The greatest evidence that the Old Covenant is no longer binding as a covenant is the fact that its priesthood has come to an end. The law and the priesthood are bound together. Again, you can't separate them. You can't just make a, you know, a threefold division and say uh, one's done and the other's not. No, no, no. The whole thing's done. When the priesthood came to an end, the law came to an end. That covenant came to an end. When one goes, so goes the other. It has been replaced by the new covenant, which is what chapter 8 goes on to make clear. When Jeremiah 31 spoke of the coming of a new covenant. It meant that a day was coming when, as chapter 8, verse 13 says, this first covenant with the Aaronic priesthood tied to it would become obsolete. So that's that not only um, happens, of course, when Christ, Dies, sheds his blood of the new covenant, inaugurates it, rises from the dead, and ascends on the clouds of heaven. That's, a, that's one moment at which the old covenant comes to an end. But that decisive moment, when it was made absolutely clear that this covenant is no longer in force, was when the temple was destroyed. In 70 A.D., when that temple came crashing down and the Romans destroyed it, as was prophesied to happen, that was a visible cue that this is done. So as Christians, there is a very real sense in which we must say we are not bound to the old covenant. We're not under it. It was a different covenant that served a temporary purpose for a particular time and a particular people. That covenant, having been completely fulfilled in Christ, reaches the end of its purpose and is now replaced with a new one. It still has use for us but always and only insofar as it comes to us through the new covenant and through Christ. If we don't recognize its fulfillment, we run the risk of falling into the Galatian error and binding the consciences of people with a covenant that has passed away. So again, we still use it. It still has relevance, but we must use it lawfully and through the lens of Christ. That means every time we go to the Old Covenant, we have to have the whole Bible in mind. Now, I'm going I'm to stop there for... Uh, the evening but these are these are things that we will have to remember we always have to remember as we are interpreting scripture and and over the course of these these other meetings that that we'll have we'll be looking at how to interpret law how to interpret prophecy how to interpret proverbs and psalms and apocalyptic literature what are the what are the things that are involved when I'm, when I'm reading these sections of Scripture? How, how do, do I read these? But you know, we, I wanted to start with these covenants and these principles in mind because these we always have to keep these in mind. We have to recognize where we are in redemptive history. And when we go back, as we should, as the new covenant directs us to, when we go back to the Old Covenant, we have to read it in light of its fulfillment. And when we understand that, then we can make proper applications. Again, okay, that, that's what's modeled for us in the New Testament. That's what the apostles are doing when they are applying certain Old Covenant laws. Now, to the people of God, they're doing so in light of the changed circumstances, and we have to have that lens as, as well. So, again, as I said, we'll, we, we'll we'll sort of put some more teeth on this as we we look at various um, parts of Scripture and, and how to read and interpret them. But that's basically our framework right, for for moving forward. So, let me uh, let me let me stop right here, and I'll, I'll uh, close with a word of prayer. Father, again, we want to be faithful readers of your word. We want to be faithful to the works that you have accomplished in the world. We want to honor Christ. We want to honor your word. And so, Lord, as we as we pour our minds and our hearts over Scripture, as we uphold it as good as food as manna i pray lord that again you would you would help us to understand the the grand story of redemption that you have been working since the very beginning and that as we understand how this story of redemption has been unfolding in history we would be able to rightly understand where we are in this story and be obedient to your commands. And so, Lord, give us humble hearts that we would submit ourselves to everything we find, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's uh, close with the, the doxology, okay?